millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. America loves a good horror movie. And as the rampant success of films like Get Out show, horror speaks to our deepest societal fears. From the wilderness, werewolves, to the unknown, aliens, to white supremacy, segregated Fruit Loops. With zombie movies, the fear is infection. The outbreak of some terrible epidemic that sweeps the world, rendering us all into the drooling, flesh-eating monster next door. But as Dahlia Schweitzer shows in her new book, Going Viral, zombies are part of a much older lineage, both as a monster that dates back to Haitian slavery and critiques of capitalism, and as the latest in a long line of what she calls outbreak narratives. What's crazy about these stories, though, is that they're not just limited to movies. We've got zombie video games and novels, of course, but we've also got infection and plague narratives saturating news organizations and government budget documents. Journalism is influencing novels, is influencing movies, is influencing government policies, and all the way back around again, totally blurring the line between fact and fiction. So why have these outbreak narratives infected the public conversation? How have they changed the way we see the world, from our neighbors to the government? Dahlia joins us in the studio to talk about zombie viruses, bioengineered plagues, and why The Walking Dead is so popular. Thanks for coming into the studio, Dahlia. Thank you for having me. So in your book, you link stories of viruses, zombies, and terrorism under the header outbreak narratives. What's similar about these three kinds of stories and, and what distinguishes them? Basically, in the book, I treat the outbreak narrative as a film cycle, and a film cycle, as opposed to a film genre, only really lasts like five or ten years before it kind of has to get reinvented. But because of those frequent reinventions, it's also much more tied to kind of contemporary historical events. So I look at outbreak narrative like a film cycle, and then I kind of break it up into three different waves in that cycle. So you have the wave that sort of you know, fascinated with the connection between globalization and contagion and the idea that, like, our world is more claustrophobic than ever before and we're more vulnerable to viruses than ever before. And then after 9-11, we started to get um, kind of moved to the forefront notions of bioterrorism and fears that 
the outbreak was not going to be spread accidentally as a result of globalization, but intentionally to further some kind of nefarious agenda. And then the third wave, which is the one that's most popular now, is the one that's like, okay, the outbreak has happened, social order has collapsed, and what does the world look like? Horror gets talked about a lot as the source or the manifestation of our fears. So what are we afraid of in all of these different narrative types? Well, one of the things that I talk about in the book is the notion that we are actually safer now than we've ever been, but we're more afraid than we've ever been because we're more aware of these potential risks, even if we're not really in danger of, you know, catching Ebola walking through DuPont Circle. Um, but I think as a result of AIDS and as a result of globalization, there's been this awareness that not only can your immune system not protect you from these terrifying things, but your government can't protect you from these terrifying things. So I think people feel especially vulnerable to contagion, even though it's not a real risk, because it's so tied to technology, globalization, progress and all that stuff. And is that the big change since the 90s? Because, I mean, it's not really the first time we've seen contagion narratives or like the government is out to get you. Well, what's interesting, though, is that kind of outbreak narrative really kicked off in the 90s. So narratives that were prior to that that featured like a viral outbreak were very, very different. I mean, if you look at like the Andromeda strain from 1971, you know, the viral outbreak is incredibly contained. It's very limited. It's like a small area, you know. And now when you look at movies like um, Steven Soderbergh's Contagion, it's this notion of, oh, my God, the virus has spread around the world in the blink of an eye. And there's this notion that the world is more interconnected than ever before and that, you know, planes, for example, are carriers of disease and the virus in Africa in the blink of an eye is a virus in New York. And so globalization and progress play an integral part in these narratives. In your book, too, you talk about the blurring of fact and fiction mm -hmm. and sort of how in the same way that there's no longer a distinction between like Africa and America when it comes to distance. There's also this blurring between factual outbreak narratives mm -hmm. and fictional ones. Mm -hmm. One of the things that drew me to this topic was the real life Ebola outbreak that happened in 2014. And I was kind of like, why are people so freaked out about this when we're at greater risk of, you know, dying from diabetes or heart disease or a car accident or whatever. But it was like Ebola was everywhere in the news. And I was getting emails from the schools where I work reassuring me that they were on top of it and I was going to be OK. <laughs> and it was just like, where is this kind of coming from? I really kind of date it back to AIDS because that was really the game changer. Um, and it was like before AIDS, there'd really been this complacency that we had dealt with infectious diseases. You know, we'd tuberculosis was no longer an issue. You know, it was like attention in the medical community had really shifted to things like diabetes and heart disease. Um, and so when AIDS came, it really just like changed the playing field because it was like, oh, my God, our government's not protecting us. Our doctors can't protect us. Our scientists don't know what's going on. And that, like, really changed everything. And what's true about AIDS, too, is that the, the threat is both external, since it could come from anywhere, but it's also internal. It's, it's autoimmune, so the threat could be your own body. Is that true for earlier outbreak narratives? So I think in the 1950s, for instance, you can look at movies like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, 
where the threat is very much external, right? The threat is coming from Russia or outer space or whatever. Um, and I think one of the reasons, one of the ways that AIDS really changed things is this notion that, wait a second, we're vulnerable and our immune system can't protect you, right? And then you had, you know, like the anthrax attacks in 2001, um, where after like an extensive investigation, the FBI was like, oh, the anthrax came from Bruce Ivins, who was at an army medical lab, who's an army medical scientist. And it's like, oh, my God, these people that we think, you know, are on our team are actually threats. Um, and then they also got into the notion of like terrorist cells. Right. And so it's like the family that lives across the street from you could actually be a terrorist cell. And so there was really this like the paradigm kind of shifted. And it was like, wait a second, the threat might already be within our borders and the threat might actually already be within our bodies, right? And so like in The Walking Dead, it's like one of the the themes is we're all infected, right? It's just a matter of time until you become a zombie because it's, the virus is already within you. So I think that's all tied to sort of this notion of autoimmune. There's this persistent message that you can't protect yourself. You know, it's like your body is not going to protect you. Your government's not going to protect you. You know, our body is porous. Our barriers are porous. It doesn't matter how big a wall we build, right? It's like the virus is going to get in. The terrorists are going to get in. The contagion is going to get in. And one other thing that comes up in the 90s that you talk about is how the media really played into these narratives of paranoia and contagion. So can you outline how the media reinforces that cycle of fear? Like, what's the relationship between a journalist, say, and a screenwriter for a zombie film? Whenever you're examining some kind of agenda, right, and you're asking, why is so-and-so doing this? The answer, nine times out of ten, is money. Right. So Hollywood loves to capitalize on our fears because that increases box office profits. And then journalists play on our fears because that increases, you know, clicks. Like if I had a newspaper headline that said one person died of Ebola, you're going to be like, OK, whatever. But then if my headline says world at risk of another pandemic, I'm going to sell many more copies. Right. So there are certain articles that will, the headline will be like, you know, will Ebola wipe us out? And then somewhere buried in paragraph three will be a doctor who's saying Ebola is really not a big threat because, you know, the you either have a virus that's very contagious or you have a virus that's very fatal, but you can't have both, right? Um, but that quote from the scientist is going to be buried in paragraph three because it's much less sensational than Ebola is going to wipe us out. And so, in the early 90s, to go back to your previous question, there was a real life outbreak in 1994 in Africa, which fit perfectly in the chronology of Richard Preston's article, Crisis in the Hot Zone, that then got book and movie deals and the Wolfgang Peterson movie outbreak that came out in 95. And so it's when there was the 1994 outbreak, it was like, is it media imitating fact or fact imitating media? Because it becomes this kind of like catch 22 chicken the egg thing. All we know is that we're very, very scared, and there really isn't a factual basis for that fear. And what's so weird about the crisis in the hot zone, too, is that Richard Preston eventually went on to write a book called The Cobra Effect yep. that was fiction mm -hmm. that Bill Clinton read mm -hmm. and then used to justify, I think, like $294 million yeah. and of then spending. Donna Shalala actually wrote an article about bioterrorism, which begins with a summary of The Cobra Effect. And no mention of it being fiction, right? So it's like this totally bizarre blurring where you're just like, what reality are we living in? It really kind of makes you wonder 
how many narratives have been constructed to manipulate public opinion to further certain agendas that may not have been actually, you know, truthful or necessary. So what was it about viruses that so captured our attention? Why did the cobra effect have such an effect? I mean, what is it about consuming these narratives that makes us more and more paranoid, whereas like watching violent movies numbs us to violence? One of the things that I talk about in the book is that contagion triggers a very specific kind of fear, which is a little bit similar to terrorism in that it doesn't have specific boundaries, right? So if there's a war in Afghanistan, right, which there is, we walk down the streets in D.C. and we're not really worried about being hit by a bomb, right? Because there's this idea that, like, the war is happening over there and it's not going to travel over here. And I think what's so terrifying about a virus is that a virus doesn't stay confined, right? So a virus in Afghanistan could tomorrow be a virus here, right? And I think another thing that terrifies people is with, with AIDS, I think there's still this sort of preconceived notion that your your behavior is going to prevent you from catching it, right? So if you're a good person and you practice safe sex and you don't use drugs, you're not going to get AIDS, right? But I think people are so terrified of Ebola because there's this notion that like, I could be a really good person and I could still get it. And so I think that's one of the reasons why the fear is so different, because I think on a subconscious level, people realize there's nowhere that's safe from viruses. And one of the tropes that you see over and over again in these narratives is the notion of the necessary accident, right? So you're always seeing in the movies, you know, someone breaks out of quarantine or someone's protective suit tears or someone gets stuck accidentally with a needle, And I think you see the exact same thing in zombie narratives. But I don't think that people are waking up and thinking, wow, a zombie could get me today, right? There's at least some kind of metaphorical barrier there, right? Whereas I think when people hear, oh, there is an Ebola case in D.C., people are like, oh, my God, I could be case number two. If you were a zombie, I would know you were a zombie because you would look like a zombie, right? But you could have a contagious disease that I don't know that you have because you look totally healthy. And so you could infect me without me even realizing. And so I think that's another layer of fear that happens with viruses where it's like someone that looks healthy could kill you. Right. Whereas like if you're a zombie, I know you're a zombie. One of the interesting things about zombies, though, is that if you look at satires like Shaun of the Dead, Mm -hmm. sometimes it's difficult to tell who's a zombie. Right, exactly. Because the satire is that these zombified low-wage workers and the ones looking at screens all look like zombies. Right. Do you think there's something deeper there with that critique of capitalism? Well, I think what's interesting about that is that that's actually really kind of fundamentally integrated into like the beginning, the origin of the zombie narratives. The original zombies were slaves, right? And so they were being controlled by the sort of the slave master. So I think zombie narratives just began with, you know, this notion of capitalism and the workers being exploited and all that stuff. And so, yeah, I think that's that goes back to the very beginning and it continues to be this sort of constant in the zombie narratives. Um, and that's where we were talking about Dawn of the Dead earlier. And of course, that's like the ultimate one where it's like it takes place in the mall. Right. Right. And the zombies are walking around the mall because that's the familiar space for them because after they used to come and shop. Right. And then <laughs> Shaun of the Dead has that brilliant opening sequence where 
it kind of like it's like these fake outs where you're like, oh, it's a zombie. No, it's just someone on their way to work. Oh, it's a zombie. No, it's just someone on their phone. Right. Oh, it's a zombie. No, it's just someone working the till at some, you know, mass market store or something like that. Um, So the notion of zombies and capitalism, I think, is just like you can't separate one from the other. Right. And even when it's not satire, it's like capitalism and globalization and the greed that follows are involved in the lead up to that zombie or contagion apocalypse. I mean, I think that's part of the reason why those narratives like The Walking Dead are so popular right now is I think either consciously or unconsciously, there's this feeling that like the world as it is now isn't going to last for that much longer. And so it's kind of like this weird fascination with seeing what is the end of the world going to look like, because that could happen in a few years. And it would be kind of our fault, too, right? I mean, there's this shift in culpability because Mm -hmm. in a globalized world, we're all connected. And in these narratives, it's it's never really one person's fault. Right. Right. And that's what I think. It's just it's weird how it's complicated. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it often is very heavy handed. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's like. The outbreak narrative becomes really interesting to look at to sort of examine our latent racism, right? And kind of look at who is the other, right? Even if they're villainous or innocent, you know, it's still the quote unquote primitive African, right? Or the primitive African monkey who spreads the virus or in like contagion, you know, it's the Asian chef who doesn't practice good personal hygiene Mm -hmm. coupled with the American globetrotting blonde who's not staying home with her kid and to make matters worse, is sleeping around, right? So there's you still have these kind of very obvious kind of moral judgments, right? But then it's also complicated in the sense that it's like in Contagion, you don't really have a villain, right? It's not like, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow's character didn't do this on purpose, right? And she certainly doesn't, you know, gain from it. And the chef didn't do it on purpose. So it's... And then it, you have this really amazing, brilliant sequence at the very end of Contagion, which is like kind of like a flashback to what happened on day one of the outbreak, where you see that the initial event, the tipping point that caused everything is this American company that is tearing down, you know, nature in Asia. And then that's what's forcing the the bat to fly out of its habitat to then infect the pig, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So I think in a lot of these narratives, you really get this notion of sort of it's all of our culpability, right? Yes, we didn't cause the outbreak, but we're the ones who are, you know, supporting these globalized corporations. We're destroying the environment. We're, you know, disrupting the ecosystem. And then that's what eventually is leading to the outbreak. So one thing that comes up again and again in these outbreak narratives, especially um, with the bioterrorism ones, Mm -hmm. is that not only is something going to kill us all catastrophically and bloodily, but there's a big conspiracy behind it. Yes. So what's the relationship between conspiracies and outbreaks? That's actually a really interesting question. Um, And it's one that I know I'd always kind of been thinking about why are we so enamored with conspiracy after 9-11 happened, like in real life, you know, and it was people were so passionately advocating for a conspiracy theory as if that was the better alternative. And I was like, why? Right. I mean, I don't want to think that our government is evil and planning against us. Like, I'd rather think that, like, they made some mistakes. But I think what it it keeps coming back to is that people actually find it more reassuring to think, oh, there's a strategy behind it. You know, and I think you could even draw parallels with religion and this notion that, like, oh, God has a plan rather than thinking like, you know, oh, your Aunt Susan just died. Right. It was like, no, no, that was this was part of God's plan. 
even if the actual day-to-day incidents are unpleasant, it's reassuring to think that there is some kind of greater plan, that there's some kind of motive, that like this is all for the best somehow, right? And so I think people really take comfort in conspiracy theories. And so it's kind of crazy to admit that like people are taking comfort in like the anti-vaxxer movement, right? But I think there is this notion that like people like to think that there's someone behind the scenes that's like playing chess. We've got a ton of links on the episode page to charts and images from Dahlia's book, as well as some zombierific reading for you. But as ever, the juiciest place to start is Dahlia Schweitzer's book, Going Viral, Zombies, Viruses, and the End of the World. There's a lot to uh, chew on in there. Next week, we are tearing off in the opposite direction from the brain dead, and talking about people with extremely big brains, specifically kids, and how over the past century we've totally changed our approach to raising them, especially the smart ones. All that is next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.